Hi. Hello. Well, welcome back. Thank you. How was being home? It was good. Just the right amount of time? Too much time? Um, Not enough time? It was the right amount of time. Right amount of time? Yeah. Saw the people I needed to see, did the things I needed to do. It was good. How was the beach house? Beach house was lovely as ever. Um, I can never spend enough time there. So I got, I don't know, 16 hours there before I had to leave, but that's okay. Nice. What'd you do for Christmas? Um, very little. <laughs> we had like a Christmas lunch, which usually my family does dinners, but some of my family was traveling to the Bahamas, so nice. we, we moved dinner up a little bit to accommodate them, which is fine. Um, but yeah, we just had uh, lunch, and then we went our separate ways. <laughs> What's that like? <laughs> it's wonderful. We got home at, you know, let's say we got to my aunt's house at one, drank for an hour, and then uh, ate for an hour, and we went home. <laughs> We ended up doing Christmas Eve and Christmas Day together. Um, we haven't actually done like our official full family Christmas yet because we had some people out of town. So we still have another one to go, which will which will be fun. We're gonna do a really nice meal. I think we're gonna do like full taco bar and everything, so that'll be good <laughs> for for a Christmas meal. Does your family do any kind of traditional meal? No, we've kind of strayed <laughs> away from. Very traditional. Like for Thanksgiving, obviously, we did not do traditional Thanksgiving meal. But my God, if I proposed a taco bar, I think I would be excommunicated from my family. <laughs> It'll be good. I'm gonna make like a pork roast for carnitas. It'll be fun. That's when we'll like do gifts and all that. Like we haven't even exchanged gifts. So it, Christmas Day was nice. It was like relaxing, and we just kind of like hung out. It was all day. Um, but we haven't even felt like we've really done our Christmas yet. Okay. Okay, so last time we talked about, um, I told the story of Barney and Betty Hill uh-huh. and their abduction story, and then you did, like, a deep dive of some of the, like, accounts and records that they had. So what did you find? Yeah, I it was one of my micro-obsessions for... Probably 48 hours. So it turns out that all of the records from the Barney and Betty Hill incident are actually stored at the University of New Hampshire, um, which is close enough to my parents' place to warrant me going there and continuing my micro-obsession. They do have uh, records of the hypnosis sessions. They also have, like, every related record for this case. So it's, like... The government records of you know different investigations and the initial reports and things like that well the hypnosis records is something you were asking about that yeah. i didn't know if they had it like recorded or anything like that so yeah I think so it turns out and, and i think it might be i think recording is a well no that's not even true there's definitely a recording like an audio recording mm-hmm. they have the full transcripts like written transcripts in record i did find an audio transcript from Betty's hypnosis session on YouTube, which was fascinating to listen to. Do you remember what part it was recording? Like, what was she reliving the yes. encounter? Because they did a bunch of different sessions. Yeah, the one that I listened to, and I only listened to one, but it was her, I'm pretty sure it was her, like, reliving, like, being taken mm. and all that. And it's super interesting to listen to because she was, like, you could tell she was crying and, like, very upset during the hypnosis. But anyway, so some of that exists on YouTube, and you can listen to it. All of the records, though, there's... If you go on the University of New Hampshire website to find this, it says basically everything that they have, like an itemized list. And one of the things that they have is Betty's dress that she wore on that day. Was it... Was it ripped? Yes, and oh there's, a, there's a photo of it. So you can go on the website and actually see a photo of the dress. But they have a listing of sort of all the documents that they have. So oh, that was kind of interesting. It's it's not surprising to me that she was, like, all upset during that hypnosis session because 
when she was taken, like the accounts all say that she like put up a fight yeah. and she like watched Barney get taken and then like mm-hmm. they came back for her. She had said like he was like under some type of mind control and then they came yeah. back for her, which is why like her her dress was ripped because she was trying to like fight them a little bit, but also went after him to make sure he wasn't alone. So that's that's spooky but interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd love to go there sometime and just sort of look through what they have. I think it'd be interesting. Yeah, so that's that. I also mentioned, I don't know if it was last time or the time before when we talked about the Dyatlov Pass. Yeah. Um, So I saw this article in the New York Times, um, and I just pulled it up about this camera that was found from an expedition from over, like, 50 years ago. So it was these... Americans who did this pretty like treacherous climb in South America I think they were in Argentina some of them died during the hike but they did kind of a similar thing to the hikers that I talked about where they left a stash of things as they were ascending basically to get on the way back down and one of the things that they left was a camera a 35 millimeter camera that they had been using to document their travels the hikers who came back down and like survived this expedition knew that the camera and other stuff was left on the mountain. They couldn't exactly say where, but they knew it was still there. And so since then, people have been looking for this camera to try to figure out like what went wrong, like, you know, stuff like that. And in, it looks like 2022, so last year, it was actually found, but it was found by researchers who like had been tracking like glacial patterns to specifically find this camera. So it was an expedition or something to find the camera. They yes. weren't they didn't just like stumble upon no, it. No, no, it was like a deliberate sort of expedition to find the camera and the other things that were associated with it. And and say again when the hike actually happened. Um this article saying like 50 years ago. Mm. I don't yeah. know how much how much how much glacial movement there would be during that but maybe like i don't know maybe if there's like an avalanche each year or something then it's moving around quite a bit but okay keep going yeah i haven't read the full article yet i just found it on the new york times um the title is ghosts on the glacier mm. so, if you're so naturally you clicked on it naturally i clicked on it so if you're interested it was published december 9th in the new york times it looks really interesting someday i'll read it <laughs> so But anyway, they they found this camera, and so this article kind of talks about what they found on the camera and kind of the interesting sort of investigation into the expedition. So, yep. What do you think is on the camera? Probably some ghosties. Some ghosties? Yeah. Maybe some aliens. Maybe both? (laughs) I don't know. I really haven't looked into it that much. (laughs) It's, It's interesting that it's like notable enough that there's a separate expedition to go look for this camera. Yeah. And I don't know the context of the initial expedition. So I don't know if it was like uh, government funded or like for research purposes or something. So it could Hobbyists. be that, what? Hobbyists. Just like, you know, <laughs> yeah, looking for it. No, I'm sure there's I could see you rooting around in a glacier trying <laughs> to find this camera. I'm sure there is some reason that they really wanted to get their hands on this. So anywho, I like it. Yeah. I think that's all the follow-up stuff we had. Are you ready for a question? Yeah. Okay. I have two different, like, what's your favorite blank questions today. The first one is, what is your favorite podcast and why? Oh, God. Okay. Um, Well, this is such a tough one. If you had asked me a year ago, it would have been morbid. Um, it's kind of what I thought you would go with, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. Also, there is a correct answer, and it's this podcast, but <laughs> I'll let you pick a different one. Well, I can't, you know. I can't, I'm biased. Slightly. Um, no, so I've been listening to Morbid pretty close to when they started, which would have been six, seven years ago. Um, it's these two girls who, unsurprisingly, live in Boston, sort of the Boston area. It's actually an aunt and her niece, but they're more like sisters. Like, they were kind of raised together, but they cover... That part I did not know. Yeah. So if you listen and don't know the context, you'd probably think that they're sisters, but 
because they're, well, I think Ash is like 20, 25, 26, something like that, maybe a little bit older, but um, Elena is mid to late 30s, so there's like an age gap, but they, they seem like sisters, but no. Anywho, um, they cover sort of all things morbid, as you might assume. Um, they're hilarious. I like them because they really shit on bad people. Like, I think a lot of true crime people kind of glamorize serial killers and the, the you know, sort of bad people in these stories, but they do a really good job of, like, just shitting on them and highlighting the lives of the people that were affected. But my, I think my number one right now is, and that's why we drink, the two co-hosts are so funny, so funny. One of them does... One of them does true crime, like much more traditional true crime, and one does kind of whatever they find interesting in terms of like spooky ooky kind of stuff. Wait, that's an option? I don't have to do spooky? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to, but okay, I might, do whatever you want. I might find something, because we kind of covered all spookiness so yeah. far. I mean, like, you cover whatever you want. Add some diversity to it. <laughs> um, but they're hilarious. I think I, <laughs> I think I like their podcast because it's like three hours long consistently so I just listen to it for an entire morning um, but they're hilarious they're super quirky um, recommend I mean they have like I don't even know 300 plus episodes at this point they're so funny they're going on a live tour in the next I don't know, six months and I'm desperately trying to get my hands on tickets didn't you look at the the ticket prices what I were they what were they did. up to they were they were so much when I first looked I looked when they started selling them and they were like 200 or 250 because they're coming to Minneapolis and I was like oh I was like I really can't justify this but I still want to go so bad so I'm probably gonna end up buying tickets but yeah they're they're hilarious so yeah what about you um okay so how many hours of podcast did you listen to this year 36,000, something like that. 36,000 minutes. Minutes? That's what it that makes more sense. Um, I, I would say I've really only like started listening to podcasts, and I, I like taking recommendations and listening to new ones. So I wouldn't say that there's any that I'm like seriously devoted to. There's actually – I used to listen to like a fan fiction. It was called MuggleCast, and they still do ones. But they're not as fan fiction anymore. They kind of like break down each chapter, which to me isn't as fun, but it's still interesting. But honestly, I've like I'd say the only one I really religiously listen to is the Daily from New York yeah. Times. I listen to that one every day. Yeah, so it's it always is just ironically like accurate of something that I want to learn about. Like I think we'll see something in the news, and I'll be like, "Do you know anything about this?" And then just ironically the episode of the daily that that day is like something that'll break it down yeah i think it forces me to think about things that i otherwise wouldn't because i i mean it's generally like a half an hour and it's probably eight times out of ten things that i don't think i'm going to care about but i'm just like okay i'm gonna you know drive to school or wherever and listen to this and it's always super interesting it's not like overly complicated that you have to do any more like research to understand the topic like they break things down really well just kind of give you give you insights and kind of both sides of the story. It's like the perfect length of time. It's like usually 30 to 40 minutes. And I think I told you the other day, like, my therapist had asked, like, oh, I don't really listen to podcasts. I was like, well, if you listen to nothing else, like, try this one. Mm-hmm. Like, this is kind of like an intro podcast that's yeah. really – you don't have to listen to anything older to get the context of it. You can just listen to one, like, you know, daily if you'd like to. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff I like about it. But I would say – the one that I'm actually into is the daily. Yeah, and I I don't know if you've ever listened to the ones that they put out on Sundays. Sundays or Saturday? I think it's Sundays. It is Sunday. Um, yeah, the Sunday read or something. Yeah, like the that. Sunday read. Mm-hmm. So it's it's more of like storytelling, but it's they'll take sort of a long form article and have one of their hosts read it, and so it's really well done. It's a more in depth look at again something that you probably wouldn't think about looking at on your own. But those are really interesting to listen to. So, yeah. There is a correct answer to this one. Do you have a favorite episode of the Daily? Oh, this is a <laughs> I know what you're getting at. Um, yes, the. I'm sorry, I sound so basic. 
The one that just came out on Taylor Swift. It's really good. Incredible. It's really good. I think a lot of people who are not Swifties, and I'm going to sound like every other Swiftie out there. You don't like, even have to. Be. The episode itself is really good. The episode's really good. Like I've been listening to Taylor Swift since I was, let's say, 13. You know, she's roughly the same age as me, so like I watched her career trajectory. But it's like she's just so different because there's so much like intelligence that goes into her music and she writes you know let's say 95 percent of all the songs she puts out quick quick side joke she had said like oh i would just imagine like singing this song to the person that wrote it to see what their take was but the person that wrote it is me so (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's like there's always a story behind her songs there's some deeper meaning she very rarely i mean a lot of them like the breakup songs and things like that they're People have connected them to people, but she never comes out and says, like, yeah, this song is about this person. Like, she's just not like that, but you can put enough of the context clues together to say, like, well, this is about, you know, Harry or or whoever. Well, there were two things I loved about the episode. I I agree with you. You don't have to be a Swifty to like this episode. There were two things I really liked. The first one is it just covers the absolute roller coaster that was her career. Um, And, like, basically when she went dark for like over a year because of backlash that she was getting in the public image and then her like comeback to her of reputation. And it, it covers that really, really well, which I don't think people would know if all you did was listen to her music. The second thing I really liked is the, the journalist who did the story on her and had been covering her for years talked about how Taylor talks about you know, being embarrassed or being betrayed or being, um, you know, the butt of a joke or something like she puts all of that stuff in her songs or like she basically a lot of her songs are about when like things don't go well for her. Mm. And she was saying this, these are like everyday problems. This is, you know, an American idol that is having everyday problems that everyone else does. And if these problems can happen to Taylor Swift, like it's okay that these problems are happening to me. So I think that really puts it into context for all of her listeners that like, She's just a person, and it's okay to have these problems and talk about them. So yeah. those are the two things I really liked. You do not have to be a Swifty no. to like that episode. Like, if you're not a Swifty, that's fine. I think we're both of the generation. Like, we, I don't know about you, I grew up listening to Taylor yeah. Swift. Like, when I was a te- in my, like, most formative years, it was Taylor Swift who would release a song, and I'm like, I'm going through that exact same thing right now. And she just also seems like a genuinely nice person. Mm-hmm. Like, I... I'm not somebody who like idolizes celebrities. I think a lot of them just go the wrong way with their fame, and it just seems like she doesn't. And like I, maybe she, I mean she does have a very good PR team, but like she seems like a genuinely good person, and I think that's really hard when you consider how long she's been in the spotlight and sort of under the microscope of fame. She just seems good. I saw a video the other day of. And you're going to have to help me fill in some of the details and the gaps here. But she went back to, it was basically this small bar where, like, small-time musicians would come up on stage and play. I'm I'm fairly sure it was in Nashville. But the dude who gave her her first record deal, she's like, I played this song in this bar, and the guy in the front row gave me my first record deal. And, like, his first name was Scott also, and that obviously... It wasn't you? No. But I know that their relationship took a turn later yeah. um but she told that story like very genuinely and said like this is i sat right here sang this song and the person in the front row gave me my first break yeah i mean i could talk about taylor forever but that's not the the story you have for today uh, just, no, no no it's gonna take a turn okay what do you got <laughs> all right you said in the last episode you wanted a possession i do also my coffee is so loud but it's just sitting right in front of me Okay, I'll edit it out. I am delivering an exorcism to you. (laughs) Great. I could use one. (laughs) This is the exorcism of Roland Doe. Have you heard of Roland Doe? (laughs) Why? Because you roll dough. What? You roll out dough. Roland. I know, but who named this person? (laughs) Okay. Okay, so I'm going to take it you have not heard of Roland Doe. No, but now. And it's no. Doe, D-O-E. <laughs> At least they didn't name him John. 
Okay, well, hopefully this first line will clear things up for you. I'm going to feel bad instantly, aren't I? <laughs> no, you're going to feel like an idiot. <laughs> All right. Tell me he was so a baker. This, <laughs> this is the story of a boy named Roland Doe. He also went by the name Robbie Mannheim, but most of the stories I read referred to him as Roland, so that's what I'm going to stick with. This was a pseudonym. His name was not Roland. I'm going to refer to him as Roland, so try to contain your I sneakers. will keep it together. I also don't feel like an idiot. Okay, well. I might later. <laughs> All right. Uh, Roland was born into a German Lutheran family in 1935. During the 1940s, the family lived in Cottage City, Maryland. Roland was an only child and became close with his aunt, Harriet. I'm also going to say sources have other names for his aunt. I'm just going to refer to her as Harriet. Harriet and Roland. Yeah. So basically he didn't have any other kids uh, in the house to play with. So like he basically hung out with any adult that he could latch on to. So it was often his aunt Harriet, who I couldn't really figure out if she lived with them or just near them. But regardless. Is it Harriet, Harriet Doe as well? <laughs> sure. His aunt was a spiritualist and introduced Roland to the Ouija board when he expressed interest in it. For those few of you who are not well-versed in the Ouija, it is essentially a board that can be used to communicate with those on the other side. The dead. I'm with you. Aunt Harriet died in late 1948 or 1949 when Roland was just 14 years old. And following her death, the family started to experience strange noises, furniture moving on its own accord, and ordinary objects, such as vases, flying or levitating when the boy was nearby. Roland first reported hearing knocking and scratching sounds from behind his bedroom walls. His family took him to the local hospital where he underwent a series of medical and psychological tests, which failed to find anything abnormal. And he's, like, um, roughly a teenager at this point? Yeah, he's 14. Okay. So they didn't find anything abnormal. So naturally, this is the 1940s. They decided to meet with the family's Protestant pastor. Yep, that's the next best option. Yep. So the pastor said, you know, I, this is not something I'm well-versed in, but have the boy stay at my house, and I just basically want to, like, observe, to see if, like, anything weird happens. So after having Roland stay at his house for a night of observation, the pastor advised Roland's parents to see a Catholic priest. <laughs> he basically threw up his hands and said, nope, this is, out of, this is out of the bounds of my normal religion. Yeah. So just to be clear, the family is not Catholic. They are Protestant. So this is sort of a stretch for them. But following this, Roland underwent a number of exorcisms. He was brought to Georgetown University Hospital, Georgetown is the oldest Catholic and Jesuit university founded in the U.S., so kind of checks out, and they were in the Maryland area. So the first exorcism was conducted by a priest named Edward Hughes, who was a Roman Catholic priest. During the exorcism, the boy allegedly slipped one of his hands out of the restraints, broke a bedspring from under the mattress, and used it as a weapon, slashing the priest's arm and, uh, resulting in the exorcism being halted. Yikes. So, so that, that was just the first exorcism. So mid-exorcism, yeah. he, I don't even know how you pull a spring out of the mattress like that, but <laughs> then starts just like stabbing away at the priest. Yeah. That's like a scene out of a movie. Yeah. So they sort of wrapped up this exorcism. Yeah. I think the... we're, we're calling <laughs> off the rest of this one. The priests at Georgetown were like, eh, I think we're going to back out of this. I think this is beyond us. So the family then traveled to St. Louis, um, where Roland had family living. Roland's cousin connected him with two priests at St. Louis University. Both priests visited Roland in his cousin's home, where they allegedly observed a shaking bed, flying objects, and the boy speaking in a guttural voice and exhibiting an aversion to anything sacred. Um, is there any, so like, 
Aunt Harriet died. Mm-hmm. Was she a good person? Was she? Did she die in any sort of like mysterious manner? Or um, I couldn't find anything about that. Okay, I'm wondering like where the possession's coming from. Does it get to that? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes, it's a long and windy story. But the exorcisms are going great. They're going great. So they're in St. Louis. They've. This wasn't an exorcism. This was just the priests observing him at home. <laughs> observing things not going well. Yeah. So sort of following this observation period, the priests got permission from the archbishop to perform an exorcism on the boy. So the second exorcism took place in 1949, so same year, at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, which is now known as the South City Hospital. Two additional priests were brought in to assist with the exorcism. So now we have three priests in total. Team of priests. <laughs> in uh, case the first two get killed off, you got a third one. Yeah. So Reverend William Bodern led the exorcism, and Walter Halloran and William Van Ross were assisting with the exorcism. <laughs> it said in one of the sources that one of them was essentially brought in to be the muscle. Oh, jeez. Like, well, that's when the box, or when the, the mattress springs yeah. start coming out. <laughs> the, the first priest was like, oh, I think this is a bigger job than just yeah. for me. You're going to be our mattress spring sponge. Yeah. So according to one of the attending priests, during the exorcism, words such as evil and hell, along with other various marks, appeared on Roland's body. And then during other parts of the ritual, the mattress would shake. So kind of getting back to that bed shaking that we we heard of earlier. Wait, they were like marked into his skin, like carved into his skin? Yes. Oh, geez. Yep. And then additionally, during this exorcism, Roland broke Walter Halloran's nose during an outburst of violence. Is he still restrained? Um, Unclear, but I think so. Okay. He's He's either restrained or Halloran was the one that was supposed to be holding him down. Okay, so he's doing his job of being the muscle. (laughs) Trying to, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to be muscle. What's, what's an exorcism without a broken nose, right? <laughs> it's hard to be the muscle against the devil. <laughs> so I've heard. Yeah. We can carve things into your skin with your mind. Yeah. So it's unclear how many exorcisms in total were conducted on Roland, but it's clear that there was more than just a few. Kind of these are the two most in detail ones that I found. One source I read claimed that there was more than twenty in the span of three months. It also became somewhat of a spectacle with sometimes dozens of witnesses attending the rituals. So it was... This was was their original exorcist movies, was they would go and watch an actual exorcism. (laughs) People like you would go attend an exorcism. (laughs) That, like, reminds me of people going, and I don't know if this still happens, to, like, watch people be executed in jail. I don't know if it still happens, but yeah, no, that was a thing where they yeah. would pull the curtain aside and you I could. Am, yeah, it's there's like a gallery of people mm-hmm. watching that. I am all for like true crime and spooky, but like that is that's that's, level. that's crossing a line for me. I do not need to watch that. That is next level. So you can still find archived newspaper articles about the exorcisms, which are really interesting. So one from August twentieth, nineteen forty nine, in the Washington Post was titled. Priest frees Mount Rainier boy reported held in devil's grip. So he was initially believed that Roland lived in Mount Rainier, which is in Maryland. Mm-hmm. He did not, but that was sort of one of the one of the misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, this was like a spectacle in the newspapers. I mean, this was entertainment for people was reporting on these exorcisms, but it was all kept very anonymous like the boy's name was never released the family was never it was never announced who they were so with that there's a lot of just like kind of fluffy information in the newspapers that you read and you're like yeah that's not real well you've got you know you've got the headlines you got the obituaries the comics and then the exorcisms yeah yeah (laughs) so that article reads Only after between 20 and 30 performances of the ancient ritual of exorcism, here and in St. Louis, was the devil finally cast out of the boy. Was he, though? (laughs) So, Father Halloran, who, again, was sort of the meat of the operation, told a reporter that the boy went on to lead, quote, a rather ordinary life. Rather ordinary, okay. So, that is the story of Roland Doe. 
We'll move on to part two. There's, but he lived a normal life. There's no part two. The story of this exorcism inspired William Peter Blatty to write the 1971 bestseller, The Exorcist. You're kidding. Which led to the movie adaptation in 1973. Can I tell you a secret, though? Yeah. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen no. it? No. It's iconic. No, nope, I haven't seen it. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, the book has sold more than 13 million copies in the U.S. alone, and the film earned him an Academy Award and a Golden Globe in 1974. It was the first horror movie to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. This is an iconic movie. you got to watch it. This, this is, okay. It's, it's going on the list. Okay. A year after the movie was released, Blatty, who is the author of the book, published another book detailing the process of writing the book and subsequent screenplay. So he first heard about Roland's apparent demonic possession when he was a senior at Georgetown University, so the same place where the initial exorcism took place. One of his professors, who of course was also a priest at Georgetown, Perfect. told him about the reported possessions and exorcisms that the boy went through. In his book, Blatty says that he wrote to the priest who conducted the 1949 exorcism. It's this correspondence that he learned of the existence of a diary kept by one of the attending priests that recorded the daily events of the ongoing exorcism. Blatty writes that he requested to see the diary, but the exorcist declined. In an attempt to get his hands in the diary, Blatty told the priest that he would change the lead character from being a 14-year-old boy to be a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, okay. That sounds so, more familiar. Yeah, you haven't seen the movie, but in the movie, it, it is a girl. Mm -hmm. However, the priest never gave the diary to Blatty, but through his research, found out that there were five copies of this diary in existence. He maintains that he did eventually read the diary and based the majority of the book and movie on that material from the diary, though he does not reveal how he came across his copy. Of course he doesn't. So an interesting note about the film, many crew members believe that the set was haunted. So just as they were about to begin production on the movie, a fire broke out on the set of the family's home. The only room that survived the set... Don't say it. ...was the daughter's room. Yep. Wow. It took six weeks to rebuild the set. During the course of filming... Nine people died, including a cameraman's newborn baby. During filming? Uh-huh. How? And one of the night watchmen. One of the film's actors, Jack McGowan, died after appearing as one of the victims of the possessed girl in the film. You're joking. Of course. Much of this could be explained as natural events mm -hmm. and highlighted as good press for the movie mm -hmm. as it was in production. I'm not sure how good um, multiple deaths are for press, but... So the book has been published at this point? Mm -hmm. The book was published in 71. And then when was the movie shot? 70. Well, it was shot shortly thereafter. The screenplay mm -hmm. was written by the same guy who wrote the book. Yep. And then the film was released in late 1974. Was was Roland still alive at this point when the movie and the book came out? Hard to say, because Roland was anonymous. Which leads us into part three. Don't, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> One common thread in all the books, movies, podcasts, and articles about this case is that no one ever spoke with Roland Doe, the boy at the center of these exorcisms. Yep. His identity was never revealed to the public, and it seems the priests and everyone else involved over the years either didn't know his actual name or never revealed it. That, Does this story ever get to how they found out it was him? That's a great question. Okay. <laughs> that's on I'll the wait. next slide. I'll wait. <laughs> Shout out to Jeffrey. <laughs> that changed just a few years ago in 2020 when a man named Ronald Edwin Hunkler died. At the time, Hunkler was an 85-year-old man living in Marriottsville, Maryland, about 40 miles north of where he grew up. In adult life, Hunkler was a NASA engineer 
whose work contributed to the Apollo space missions of the 60s, and who patented a technology that helped space shuttle panels withstand extreme heat. I love this. Hunkler eventually retired from NASA in 2001 after working for the agency for nearly 40 years. One of his companions in his elder life. From what I gather, this is not a romantic companion. This is like a healthcare companion. A 29-year-old woman who asked not to be named told the New York Post that Hunkler was always on edge about his NASA colleagues discovering that he was the inspiration for the exorcist. What? Did he change his name? No, it was a pseudonym. The whole time, right? The whole time. According to Hunkler's companion, Hunkler never believed that he was the victim of satanic possession and he shunned religion as an adult. She claims the whole possession was made up. But there's one last event that couldn't quite be explained. Days before Hunkler died, a Catholic priest showed up at his home to perform last rites. Last rites. She didn't call him, and at the time of his death, Hunkler wouldn't have been able to call on himself. He was also estranged from his family, so there was no family when he died. So a priest just shows up. A priest just shows up to read him his last rites. I wonder how those last rites went. Mm-hmm. Is that it? That's the story. That's it? Oh, my gosh. So his... So then he passes away of natural causes. Passes away of natural causes, and his companion is the first one to confirm that he was Roland Doe. He kept it secret his entire life. He was terrified that his colleagues at NASA would find out that he would be shunned from the scientific community... His companion said that every Halloween, he would leave his house because he was paranoid that someone would know and would come to essentially, like, terrorize him. And so every Halloween, he left his house, went somewhere else, basically in hiding. Wow. But no one knew. So he lived with that all those years? Mm-hmm. Lived his entire life. The exorcisms was when he was 14. Wow. And then you said that there's this diary floating around somewhere that there was someone in the room that like kept an account of all these different exorcisms. Yeah. So from what it sounds like, so the first exorcism at Georgetown was just one. And then they kind of determined like, this is beyond our scope. So then they went to St. Louis and it seems as if the exorcism there I refer to it as one, but it sounds like it went on for weeks. So they would essentially go to the house, the priest would go to the house, start the exorcism, and then sort of leave at the end of the day. They basically like kept him as a patient there. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, supposedly when the exorcism was done, he went to just live an ordinary life. And was there anything special about the author that got his hands on the, the diary and wrote the book, or was it, it could have been anybody? It could have been anybody. I think he just... He wasn't connected to the story at all. He, just, he wasn't was connected to the story. Okay. It was the fact that he was at Georgetown for school, like he was an undergrad, and one of his professors at the time basically was like, hey, have you heard about this like crazy thing that happened back in the 40s? And he just got a little bit obsessed with it. And it was, you know, that was... I don't know what year that was, but it was close enough where there were still people at Georgetown. You know, this professor was in some way connected, you know, through being a priest or whatever, connected with people who were there and who witnessed it. And so the author talked to people who were involved with it, somehow got his hands on this diary and sort of got that first-person perspective of this, became fascinated with it. The author had written other things before The Exorcist, but this was obviously his major mm-hmm. work. And he died, I think, in 2017. So you can't actually... The author is now dead. Something I wonder... I don't know if there's any way to, to even know this. I wonder if Roland ever read the book or saw the movie that is based on him. I don't know. I don't know if anyone can know. If he never told anybody and the only person that ever found out that it was him was his, like, caretaker, basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Is this all pretty well known? Like, if you said these names, like, oh yeah, this is who the, this is who the Exorcist is based on. I don't know. Probably in certain communities. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. I knew. Let's see. I probably watched The Exorcist for the first time way too young. I mean, I was probably ten to twelve. Um, and I'd watched it several times throughout the years. I knew that it was loosely based on a, you know, quote unquote true story. I didn't realize that it was based on a book until I was kind of an adult. I haven't read the book. I would love to. I would also love to read that diary. I would also love to read the book that the author wrote about sort of creating the book, mm-hmm. like writing the book and yep. the screenplay. I did go online and they're like $175. So. In addition to my podcast tickets, if you want to buy me that book, <laughs> any of our listeners, I would love that. Um, although it's apparently you can get it on Kindle for like $8. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. There have been a ton of like remakes and sequels, and they're all pretty bad. But, you know, the issue is the Roland's identity wasn't known ever, so nobody could talk to him. The author is now dead, so you can't talk to him. I would imagine most of the priests that attended the oh, yeah. exorcisms are gone. So it's, I think it's just going to be one of those stories that kind of lives in history as a mystery. Well, I bet the, the churches that these things happened at are just the, the institutes are like wholly different now. Yeah. So you can't go there and ask around, see if they have any records of these things. But Yeah. Well, and like the... Catholic Church, from my understanding, like exorcisms are something that are extremely rare within the Catholic Church. They do happen. And I'm trying to remember there's, whether it's at the Vatican or somewhere else, there's actually a record of, I think, like every exor- like legitimate exorcism that's wow. happened, but there's very few that have been, like, in the church's eyes, confirmed as sort of possession cases. So it's kind of interesting. Again, I'm, I'm not religious, so I frankly don't believe this stuff but i think it's i think it's interesting this is a good one no i did not really see where you were going with this i thought you just found an exorcism story and then at the end when you said well then he lived a normal life i was like oh okay they lived happily <laughs> happily ever after that was a happy story yeah. um i mean it's not like a sad story there's no well there's i guess there's some violence there's a broken nose there's <laughs> a broken nose um no, it's it's interesting, and I found a couple other stories online of possessions. I mean, there are a dime a dozen you can find them, yeah. but I think this is one of the more notable ones, and there's a lot of different kinds of records about it. There's a really interesting one in India, and I forget sort of what it's classified as, but essentially this girl, I can't remember if she died. I think she, like, died and then, like, came back to life but was her body was like inhabited by somebody from a village like 60 miles away that she's never known and like she suddenly knew everything about this girl's life and this girl's family and like they had never met there's no way that she would have known her so that one was really interesting but I chose this one well I think I'm still hung up on like now that you say that was it like what does Aunt Harriet have to do with it maybe I mean maybe that's covered in the book is it thought that maybe Aunt Harriet was the one doing the possessing, or was like that was the vessel for? Yeah, there's. I think the idea is that sort of she introduced him to the Ouija board, and then maybe she died. Maybe he used the Ouija board to try to like connect with her mm-hmm. after she's died. Maybe somehow it was somehow involved in the possession. I I don't know. Um, people. <laughs> People get really freaky about Ouija boards. I again, I don't think they're anything, but but the I'm just more wondering the timing of Aunt Harriet's death was important to this, right? Yeah. Okay. Because the possession started right after okay. she died. Got it. And I think just the connection with her being a spiritualist and you know them using a Ouija board, and then she dies, and all of a sudden there's like this crazy mm-hmm. activity happening in the house. You know, the, the family connected it to. That's a good one. Go watch The Exorcist. It's on the list. It's extremely disturbing. I think. Oh, that, perfect. I think the Catholic Church actually, like, 
if you're a Catholic, you're like not supposed to watch it or something. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Not a problem then. Not a problem for me. <laughs> yeah, so that's my story. I like it. What kind of story do you want next week? Or is it a is it gonna be a branch out? You can branch are, out. Are there any story. spookies we haven't covered? I mean, I'm sure. <laughs> I'll find something. Um, okay. Well, I've got a very big turn for a question and away from exorcisms and... <laughs> you and, don't have an exorcism-based no, question? No, I, I don't have a what's your favorite exorcist <laughs> question. Um, okay, nerd question. We've covered Taylor now in this podcast, so obviously the other thing we need to cover is Harry Potter. What is your favorite book and favorite movie and why? I hate this question. You hate this question? Okay, yeah. well, now I want to know why. I don't know that I have a favorite book. You can also answer, like, I don't have a favorite because. I don't have a favorite. Well, okay. Here. <laughs> this is going well. <laughs> so I don't love the first two or three because I think they're much more simplistic. And I think they started out definitely, like, as children's books. Mm-hmm. And as they went on, they got sort of more complex, yep. a little bit more. Like, as the characters aged the books themselves got a bit more mature yep which i think is cool um so i I definitely like the later books more i don't even remember i have a least favorite book (laughs) it's i don't even remember is it goblet of fire when hermione does the whole like spew campaign oh you hate that part i hate that that's goblet of fire that whole subplot is just so annoying to me which is interesting because a lot of people latch on to that subplot there's so like you know the HBO series that's going to come out yeah. there is a huge call for that <laughs> to be part of the plot because they really like it's this weird out of place like side story that doesn't go anywhere no and so then now there's this huge call like whatever happened with this and they want that to be part of this mini series that they do so i hope you're not disappointed by that mm-hmm. Like, I'm glad. I remember when the movie came out, and I was like, thank God they didn't put this in the movie. Right. Like, it's such a distraction from the rest of the plot. Um, okay, so that's that's my books. I think, I think probably my favorite movie might be The Half-Blood Prince. And that might be true of the book as well. Okay. I don't know why I latch on to that one, but I love it. Order of the Phoenix is also great. Yep. I think those two are my, those are, the, those are the top. Order of the Phoenix is the longest one. Um, I think the audiobook is like 32 hours, something like, it's 28 or 32 hours. Is the last hours. book not the longest? It's not. Oh. No, Order of the Phoenix is the longest one. So I think my favorite is, my favorite book is, and I go back and forth a little bit, but my favorite book is Goblet of Fire, but for different reasons. <laughs> Obviously, you just the, love the, the spew. I plot. just I I love the spew <laughs> plot. I love that books for it. The reason I love it is more like nostalgia. Is because one, I like the action in a little bit more. Right there's the the Triwizard Tournament, but then at the end when there's the big plot twist, and then it sort of like sets up the storyline for the rest of the books. That got me hooked, and as a kid, got me hooked on just being a reader. Like it mm-hmm. it started me reading a bunch more books in general not just the Harry Potter series, but that actually, like, made me enjoy reading. So the plot twist and, like, how it made me feel and get me hooked, I remember, like, sitting where I was in the house and everything and, like, sitting and reading this part. So that's why I like the fourth one is because of that part. My close second is the seventh book, but also because of how it ties everything together. Yeah. It's, like, so wonderfully written and just, like, puts a bow on on everything. So I like that. My favorite movie is probably Prisoner of Azkaban. Really? Yeah. Because hmm. I think it follows the book of any of the movies. It follows the book most closely. Also, I love how from the first two, which like you said, the first couple are very like childish. Yeah. So like the first two movies seem kind of childish, but yeah. then it takes like a darker twist. Like mm-hmm. the whole set and tone of everything in, in that movie is darker. I love you can watch the progression of like the opening sort of scenes mm-hmm. and how much darker they get over time. It's great. Yep. Like the when the, like the Warner Brothers logo yep. starts on the screen, it just like it starts out like 
fine, whatever, sort of neutral, and then it just gets darker and darker as the books. Well, that on. happens in the that happens in the books too. Yeah. It's not just oh, yeah. in the movies. So, if you read like the first chapter of each of the first three books, it is early enough in the series that it has to give like a recap of like, hey, this is Harry. He's a wizard. This is yeah. what happened last year. Here are his friends. And then in the fourth one, it doesn't do that. It yeah. starts in the Riddle House. Yep. It assumes that you know what's going on, and it starts with this murder story. Mm-hmm. So the books do that, too. But those are my favorites. Yeah, it's been a little while since I've read the books. Probably a couple of years ago, I did a read-through again. I watch the movies all the all time. time. All the time. <laughs> it's, such, it's such background now. That yeah. Does it ever catch you off guard when you watch either yes. the theatrical version yes. or the extended version mm-hmm. and there's a scene you're like where did this come from yeah no I, that happened to me within the past year I was watching it I think I was playing it on Peacock yep they have the extended version. yeah they have the extended and it was um, the it was Goblet of Fire because they were doing the Triwizard Tournament mm-hmm. and the students from Hogwarts like sang the school the school song and it's (laughs) so weird yeah I remember watching it and I was like okay I've been watching these movies for like what 20 years now and this is I've never seen it's so cringy too it's super bad super bad there is a reason that was the deleted scene yeah yeah lord okay well those are those are my favorite questions for the day okay I don't think I have any questions no, it was my turn for questions. Are we going to record in Morocco next? I don't really know how we're going to I don't do know that. how we're going to. It might be a pretty low-quality one. I think we can take these microphones with us if anybody wants <laughs> them. <laughs> I also, like, I don't know if we're going to have time. We have pretty packed days. We do. We'll see. We'll TV. see. Possibly. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> well... <laughs> That's all I got. I think next time I'll have to tell the um, story about the clam man. Yeah, I saw that on the outline. I was like, what is the clam man? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a story for another day. Perfect. We're going to end on that. <laughs> all right. See you next time. See ya.